Welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Daily Advisor. This week, I talked to Katie Martin, Principal Lead of Sustainability and ESG for Aveta, about the role of EHS in the ESG process. This episode is sponsored by Aveta. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Katie Martin, Principal Lead uh, for Sustainability and ESG at Aveta. Welcome, Katie. Thanks, Jay. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. And before we start talking about ESG, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do with Aveta. Absolutely. Um, so as mentioned, I'm the principal lead of sustainability at ESG at Aveta. And what that means is I get to wear many hats, I'm sure, like most of us listening today. So um, I help support our product development, uh, especially our ESG and sustainability product. Um, I also play a bit of an in-house consultant role role with our uh, clients. So helping support alignment with their ESG and sustainability goals, even if they're uh, still burgeoning in development and aligning them with our tool. And then I also keep my eye on the landscape, uh, both globally from a regulatory perspective and just from consumer trends and um, try to publish a lot of uh, thought leadership for both our clients, our partners and our supply chain leaders so that everyone um, can stay in alignment and ensure they're abreast of what's coming down the pike. Excellent. Well, let's just start off with why is ESG important to companies and you know what's sort of the value there for them? Absolutely. And this one I want to take a bit of a step back on and just kind of speak a little bit to the context and history of ESG, because I think since its inception to what we're speaking to today, it's taken on a lot of different iterations and means yeah. a lot of different things to different folks, especially depending on uh, where you're sitting geographically. Uh, so ESG at its conception um, was born out of uh, the United Nations, uh, essentially the facet of the principles for responsible investing. Um, they had a report that was issued in 2006, and it essentially was looking at an expanded lens of risk and sustainability from a business perspective. And as you can imagine, that was of a special interest, especially to um, the investment community, to asset managers who are really looking at that long-term view when it comes to business productivity, its success, and its ability to kind of maintain over time. So that's really what was driving this to start. And one of the reasons I think ESG has uh, picked up a popularity so quickly is those that are kind of holding the purse strings um, from the investment community are really challenging companies to look internally and ensure that the uh, operational aspects of their business are in line with the latest thinking on what makes a successful company. And the benefits that we're seeing from folks who consider this kind of expanded view of existing business principles is they tend to, one, be sustainable um, in the physical sense. So they're able to uh, see climate-related risks coming down the pike and start to have um, action-oriented plans to avoid any type of loss of value. And for a lot of folks, that includes their physical assets. So, you know, folks who are sourcing materials from parts of the world that may not uh, be above water in 10 years or have physical assets, um, manufacturing centers, et cetera, that can be impacted by the increase of storms that we're seeing happen globally, et cetera. Those types of things are important to business continuity. Um, and I think, you know, coming off the other side of the pandemic and quarantine, we're really seeing how companies that were uh, well prepared to pivot from a supply chain perspective and from an internal response perspective weathered that um, time period much better. Some other aspects we're seeing beneficially are 
the rise of generations, um, millennials and Gen Z are expecting different types of um, considerations from the companies that they purchase goods from and that they're looking to devote their uh, sweat equity to. And so companies that have strong ESG centers and are especially um, you know, addressing climate issues, issues of uh, equity within the company and within the communities they operate are able to attract and retain the best talent. Um, the last piece we're seeing too is there's data that's showing that the valuation of companies, their uh, product maturity, their product innovation um, is driven by these types of principles as well. So while unfortunately in some parts of the world, I think ESG is being um, overly politicized, what it really is is just best practices from a business perspective. It's an evolution of kind of corporate citizenship. And I think for a lot of EHS professionals, um, I like to joke that they were doing ESG before it was cool. Um, a lot of this seems familiar and maybe even pushing into levels of maturity that they've been trying to drive to beyond the strict regulatory issues that they are typically addressing as well. And yeah, I mean, obviously it's uh, it's come a long way, but I, I think, yeah, like you said, it means different things to different people, depending on who you talk yeah. to. Um, what, you know, what is the, uh, the role of EHS in the ESG process? Yeah, so um, we think of ESG to an extent as like EHS 2.0. Um, and I know that could be a bit of a contentious statement to some, but primarily what we're seeing is because so many of the data points that drive ESG reporting pieces, um, you know, safety and incidents, um, the way companies respond to and protect their personnel, obviously in the environmental aspects, um, it's all pretty much already under the EHS purview. Um, for some organizations that are um, significantly larger, uh, they may have specific sustainability or EHS uh, owners within the company. But what we're seeing is practically on a day-to-day -day basis, a lot of this responsibility is just fall falling to EHS folks as you know, senior leaders see it as things that they're already doing, mm -hmm. whether that's correct or not. So what we've been encouraging uh, our EHS compatriots to do is um, lead into the conversations that are happening in the organization now and be part of the structure and the formatting and the consideration of process, um, since a lot of it will likely fall into those teams for better or worse. But also the learnings that uh, EHS professionals bring to the table, having understood you know, how compliance and regulatory environments develop. And that's what's happening. EHS is developing into a regulatory space. Um, so I feel like they bring this wealth of knowledge and experience having gone through these processes before and seeing how these um, types of regulations develop and can help not only their companies, but also the ESG industry avoid a lot of the common pitfalls and the growing pains um, that maybe health and safety has already been through. Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously, when we talk about ESG, there's a huge emphasis on the E, on the environmental part of it. How can we be sure not to lose sight of the S and the G parts of ESG? Yeah, and this is, um, I think, something sadly we saw come into the national and international lens recently with news breaking about the rise in child labor uh, domestically here in the U.S. Um, and I think that's long been a bit of a... Um, a kept secret is there's this assumption that these types of challenges only exist in specific areas of the world, when in reality, and again, some of the outcomes of the pandemic 
and uh, worker shortages is this exists globally. It exists in our backyards. And there's a typical uh, like strategic risk reduction response, which looks at you know the suppliers that are in your immediate sphere and puts them through a rigorous assessment. But when you think more broadly from an ESG perspective, we start to see how a lot of these interlinkages create material risk. And so we need to kind of expand from this tier one, more traditional risk lens and think about the specific risks that come um, from utilizing partnerships in specific geographies and specific industries. Um, and there's been a lot of work done by um, SASB, which is now ISSB, which has helped kind of create like a heat map by industry and by location to help you hone in on how you can maybe adjust your risk frameworks to adapt to this greater change. So I feel like the uh, challenge around climate is a, a good one to have center stage, but at the end of the day, it is about the people that um, we interact with and we interface with and are responsible for. And so thinking about how to continuously be refining our, our risk matrices there and thinking about the internal policies that we need to utilize to you know, put a little teeth behind that and support that um, adoption throughout the organization is always a key, a key metric for me. And, you know, you mentioned already that, you know, EHS is typically kind of taking the, the brunt of the ESG process, but um, how or what is the best way to get leadership on board with ESG to really kind of have it be a top-down uh, initiative? Yeah, I think it, we've seen, and this is roughly a split, but it's kind of 50-50 where a lot of uh, companies that are adopting uh, ESG considerations now, it is coming top down because um, external drivers, uh, stakeholder pressures, board pressures are um, pushing C-suites to start to think about how do we operationalize this? And typically what happens is they they put it in the lap of EHS and procurement and you know hope that there is some some movement there uh, for better or worse, not really recognizing that some of this is really net new, especially when it comes to climate management and mitigation. So um, for those that maybe not be situated in organizations that have already internalized this, um, there's a lot of data right now that builds the business case for ESG and shows how from a, a financial perspective, a risk reduction perspective, a brand and reputational perspective, this type of extended framework helps protect a business and also is um, value creation. And that value creation piece is really key for EHS because I feel like a lot of times uh, these departments are considered the cost centers of the business. And when you think about the ESG pieces and all of the value add that comes from taking these on, you really start to have a lot of value creation and that can hopefully start to move um, budget into the EHS space too, as they think about the expanded capacity, the technological need, and the data management need that's growing um, as they adopt more principles of this type. And it's really kind of a, a public facing thing too, in terms of, you know, letting people know, you know, how responsible you are in these areas and for, you know, future job, job candidates who might be, you know, looking to come to work for you, they might want to see how you're, uh, how you're faring in these areas as well. Right. Oh, most definitely. Um, we're starting to see more and more that these are becoming the nice to have to the must have critical elements for job seekers. And as we think about how uh, competition for talent is just skyrocketing now, especially in certain industries and retaining that talent is so pivotal to business continuity and success. 
um, ensuring that you are able to tell a story that reflects the good work that you've been doing internally um, is an additional benefit. Of course, there's the consumer um, aspect of it as well. I can't remember where I read it directly, but there was something about how about four decades ago, most of a, a business's value was in its, its actual goods and services. It was about that 80-20 split. Mm -hmm. And now what we see is a reverse of that, where about 80% of a business's value is in its reputation and its brand wow. reputation. So this is absolutely becoming mission critical, um, not only to, uh, you know, creating an environment where you're attracting good talent, but protecting your market share, gaining market share. Um, we also start to see that um, some of these elements can also drive these businesses to outperform peers um, on a financial level, as well as, you know, the mitigation of risk as well. So lots of benefits coming from this um, when applied appropriately through the organization. Um, and, and how important is ESG reporting uh, and how can you make the most of your reporting? Yeah, and that's, that's the rub is, um, I think selecting the right reporting framework for your industry and your organization is key. Um, there is this kind of um, peace in time that we're experiencing right now where a lot of this is still voluntary. Um, you know, depending on where you're uh, situated in the world, um, especially in Europe, there's a little bit more of a ESG maturity and sophistication where some of these reporting elements, especially around climate or supply chain management, are becoming mandatory. And I think that's a good sign for us and other parts of the world of what is coming. But for right now, you get to choose your own pathway and really define what ESG means for your organization. Um, pick the elements. Um, a lot of folks use the uh, UN SDG goals and they, they select the few that are directly applicable to the organization and think about how to operationalize them. So getting that framework together now, um, getting these data systems and processes incorporated now, um, I see EHS leaders playing a strong role and they collect different elements of data across the organization um, to you know, report and meet regulatory standards. And they're able to take those learnings and those existing pathways and just expand them to increase the amount of data they're getting or the type of data. So I think this is a great time to take the, um, the pause that we have to really put together a, a strategy that's um, authentic and aligned with what your business already does well, so that by the time things like the SEC mandatory compliance pieces come into place and others that we see coming, um, come into actual fruition, you're well prepared to respond. Uh, where do you see ESG going in the next five to 10 years? You're going to see some of those things that you just mentioned, uh, you know, kind of becoming mandatory as opposed to voluntary. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, again, for better or worse, we are probably about a decade behind some of the um, maturity we're seeing in Europe. But to our benefit, we're able to kind of use that as a predictive indicator of where we're moving. And one of the hypotheses behind what the SEC is doing is one is to keep um, US-based businesses competitive as those that are applying these ESG metrics and incorporating the technologies and solutions are more sustainable and becoming more attractive. Uh, but the other piece is that we're able to, to start to see um, that these types of regulatory pieces are gonna extend from, from public to private. The interwoven nature of supply chains just makes it mandatory um, especially for those that are having to report their carbon outputs, whether you're a public or private supply chain company, 
Uh, they need you to have a hold on what your climate output is and be able to speak to that in actual data. So I think we're starting to see a formalization. We see the climate disclosure project really picking up in adoption, which is a voluntary reporting body, but it offers a significant framework to help companies determine by their industry and their geographical location, what's material relevant? Like how can they get their arms around this um, in a real uh, scalable way and not be overwhelmed by the, the data reporting needs? So I think now is the time to think about what's organically aligned with your organization, find the framework that's most relevant, whether it's key to your, your sector or your stakeholders, and start to get the processes in place to really pull this data out of your organization, um, determine your methodology for reporting, and then start you know, uh, tooting your horn a little bit, get those external sustainability reports out, incorporate it into your marketing, and really make sure that you're telling the story of your organization in its best light. Absolutely. Well, Katie, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. I always love to talk about these things. So thrilled to be here. Um, always available for, for questions and support. Um, and really appreciate you taking the time to shine a light on the intersection of EHS and ESG. All right. Thank you. That wraps up episode 154 of EHS on Tap. Thanks again to Aveta for sponsoring the episode. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time.